All right, the reading tonight is from John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. These are the words of our Lord. You know, one of the great things about being able to do RUF uh, for as long as I have done it uh, is getting the opportunity to see some of my former students uh, go on to what I would refer to as, um, I don't know, mild levels of popularity. Um, and I'll be honest with you, I'm really weirded out by it. Um, there's a guy, actually, a, a friend of mine, a sort of Nashville alternative folk pop singer, uh, Trent Dabbs, uh, that prior to his going on to do almost what every song on Grey's Anatomy, uh, was leading music here at RUF about a decade ago. Um, Dave Barnes, another one that you guys may have heard of. Uh, I remember Dave when I first met him as a sort of pudgy little junior high kid who was hilarious even back then in the 90s. Uh, And now he's kind of gone on to sort of fame and fortune, I guess, as far as that's concerned. But what's funny is, is I love these guys' music. And I still listen to them. And it's still so strange for me when I'm driving down the street and listening uh, to these guys sort of do what I love to hear them do, but also knowing that I know them. In other words, there's something really special about knowing the guys who produce the art that I love. Look, here's the question. Where does that strange sense of intimidation come from? When you meet somebody who is the origin of the art that you enjoy. You know what I'm talking about? Where you get around somebody who is very gifted and maybe you've actually enjoyed some of the things that they've done. And you just feel a little like, there they are. (laughs) Where does that come from? Well, uh, in his commentary on Genesis chapter 1, J.I. Packer, who is sort of a very well-known theologian, late 20th century, still around as a matter of fact, says this about Genesis chapter 1. He says, now that you have enjoyed these works of art, you must come and shake hands with the artist. Since you were thrilled by the music, we will now introduce you to the composer. What Packer is talking about is what the ancient Israelites would have been confronted with in the opening chapters of the Bible in God's creation. In other words, it was assumed that up until that time, they had already been standing in awe of what they had seen in the creation around them. Now, as Moses sits down to pen the first five books of the Bible, it's time to meet the artist Look, this is exactly, I would submit to you, what the Apostles' Creed is trying to do for us when it says that we believe in God the Father Almighty, here it comes, maker of heaven and earth. That is that he is the creator. And as we search this semester for this question, to answer this question of why believing matters, we're trying to understand what it means for him to be the creator. And we're trying to understand what faith has to do with that. We're looking at faith this semester, of course, in terms of its object, not so much as its nature. And we're trying to see if there's something that can transform us. Well, look, let me promise you that there are few topics that I have had the privilege of being able to teach and talk about with people, college people, over the years 
that come anywhere close to the doctrine of creation. To understand God as creator will completely change the way in which you look at the world around you. And even, as it turns out, our Christian life. Okay, three things I want to get at you tonight, okay? We want to look at creation and God. We want to look at creation and the world. And then we want to look at creation and us. In other words, how it applies to us. Okay, first of all, creation and God. Look, what we just read there, what James just read for us in John chapter 1, we see the apostle John retelling the story of creation. In other words, John opens his gospel uh, from the very beginning. It starts in the same little phrase, in the beginning. And, but what he does, though, is he retells the story of creation around the person of Jesus. John says about Jesus that without him, nothing was made that was made. So look, for just a second, I want you to enter into uh, my existential moment of being intimidated by my uh, sort of newly famous friends. Just kind of come with me for a second and note, note that there's, there's almost an appropriate level of personal anxiety that you meet when all of a sudden you come in contact with the source of excellence. You see a movie star down a popular sort of a big city street. Maybe you get a chance to go in concert and you're on the front row and you can't believe it because that person is right there. Where does that come from? Well, the Bible actually attests in page after page to the same thing happening in us when we consider God's creation. We could take a passage like Isaiah 40, verse 28, that says, The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Can't you see what the writer is doing there? He's saying, look, when you come in contact with human superlativeness, you get a little bit of a quiver. <laughs> Whenever you see someone do something excellently, especially something that you've enjoyed up until this time, you get a little excited. You get a little thrilled. You kind of want to say something to them like, I love what you do. Your music's awesome. <laughs> the Bible on almost every page records man doing the same thing when they meet their God. The Bible wants you to know that because God is creation's author, he therefore is in charge of it all. Look, there are ways in which throughout the history of Protestantism, people have tried, at least in the English language, to express what it means for God to really be in charge of everything. I would dare say few have done it better than the theological creed that's behind uh, the Reformed tradition. Some of you often have asked me, uh, last Reformed University Fellowship, what does that mean? Is that like Reform, Reform School? What does that mean? Well, in, in one sense, it simply is the theology that came up out of the Reformation. Reformation, Reformed. We are what you might call generic Protestantism here at RUF. But one of those great creeds that came up out of the Reformation was called the Westminster Confession of Faith. And in chapter 2 of that confession, we get this particular statement about God. Listen to this. God has all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself. He is alone in and unto himself all sufficient, not standing in need of any creatures which he has made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in by 
unto and upon them. He alone is the fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. And he has most sovereign dominion over them, to do by them, for them, or upon them whatsoever himself pleases. In his sight all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creature. So as nothing is to him contingent or uncertain, he is most holy in all his counsels, in all his works, and in all his commands. To him is due from angels and men and every other creature whatsoever worship, service, or obedience he is pleased to require of them. You get a nosebleed from reading stuff like that. It's so high and lofty in its view about God. Where did that come from? It began, the Bible says, in looking at creation. And I simply want to pitch at you in in applying this first point tonight, that there are few diseases that will infect your spiritual life more potently than a small view of God. And the best way to begin to explode those small thoughts, the best way to give yourself an antidote to those small thoughts, is to begin to set yourself to explore every last corner of his glorious creation. In other words, the primary way in which we keep even ourselves in perspective is to realize that he is the creator and I am the creature In other words, we don't ever sort of get over this God. He is is immensity personified. You never fail to look and discover new things about him. Now look, this ought to immediately start explaining a lot of things to you. Because we want to say very carefully that God is distinct from his creation and yet sovereign over it all. But because that's the case, we can always expect, and the Bible actually affirms this in a number of places, that we're constantly getting what we might call nonverbal cues from God through all of his creation. Nonverbal cues. In other words, nature is God's very first evangelism tool. This is one of the reasons why a walk through the woods, going out and throwing a frisbee through the grove on a sunny day, um, enjoying creation on any level, a good work of art, a well-done movie, great music that lights you up on the inside. Those things can, in some senses, be a little bit healing because we come in contact with God. Who knows? Maybe this weekend at Alpine Camp for Boys, we might experience some of that. So my first point is to notice that God is Lord over his creation. And in in creation, we see him giving us signals about himself. But secondly, we need to consider the next point, which is how that creation helps us see the world. And I'm extraordinarily helped in this way by a sermon that I heard years ago by, no surprise here, Tim Keller, my very favorite preacher of all time, um, in New York City. When he outlined for me four particular ways in which many people mistakenly look at the world around them. Okay? In other words, there are four false ways in which people deal with creation. And bear with me through this. I realize that this is going to ask a little bit of you, a little bit of work this evening. But look, I promise you there's some incredible insights in this when you see this unpacked. Okay, first thing. 
We look and say, because of Christianity, that creation is real. And it's not an illusion, like pantheism might say. Creation is real, first of all. You see, the pantheist looks and says, the material world, creation out there, it's all an illusion, right? It's not real. And if you really want to be mature as a fully formed human being, you need to find release from the physical world, if you will, uh, and into this real all soul or something spiritual like that. Uh, This is the hallmark of most Eastern religions. Uh, When you guys were much younger, there was a movie called The Matrix that came out, right? And The Matrix sort of uh, bartered on this one idea. What if the reality that you think you know is not the reality that is? That's Eastern pantheism that sort of looks and insists these things. Can I know that what I'm experiencing is really real? But Christianity, in sort of distinction to that, has always looked and said, actually, you can trust what you see around you. Why? Because God is behind it. The outside world is a real thing. You might have had some of your philosophy professors look at you and say, how do you know what you know? How do you know that what you think is real is really real? Right? How do you know you're not dreaming right now? How do you know this is not just an inception? We're coming to the inception illustrations later on in the semester. Look, the Bible says you can know you're not dreaming because God made the world real. It's not an illusion. That's the first thing. Secondly, though, it also means that the creation is good in that that it's not like legalism. Okay, first of all, creation is real, not like pantheism. It's good, secondly, not like legalism. Look, almost from the very earliest of Christian teaching, there arose a group of people who tried to insist that this physical world around you is inherently evil. It's bad, right? And that sort of Greco-Roman philosophy that the Roman world sort of was uh, uh, sort of uh, matched against Christianity in the first uh, centuries taught that the material world was something that we were supposed to disdain and something that we were to be to hate to hate. And so therefore the path to maturity for these people was self-denial, self-pummeling, denying yourself every single worldly pleasure. And matter of fact, if you're enjoying it, it's probably suspect. This was the idea sort of from the very beginning. But look, Christianity, Christianity opens from the very beginning of time, from John chapter 1, verse 1, that in the beginning, this is Keller's line, by the way, God had his hands in the dirt. <laughs> in other words, he was one who created and bestowed his good expression on all of creation. God loves his creation, is involved with his creation. Now look, this choked the early first first Gentile thinkers when they were presented with the gospel. And for a lot of us, we're still sort of choked on this. In many ways, we still sort of inherently distrust enjoyment of anything. You want to know how I know? Because of this question that I get from you all the time. Oftentimes I have people be like, you know, Les, I'm confused about this whole heaven thing. Like, what do you think? I mean, will we know each other in heaven Now think about that question for a second. What does that question presuppose? Will we know each other in heaven? Because I assume that when we're in heaven, we will be separated from our bodies and we'll simply be sort of, I don't know, disembodied spirits kind of wafting throughout, you know, eternity, you know, not being able to recognize each other. It's just sort of this state of eternal bliss. How does that work? Look, y'all, the Bible actually says that the heavens... The heaven that is coming 
is a new heavens and a new earth. We will enjoy a material existence in eternity. The separation of your body from your soul is a supremely unnatural thing that the Bible calls death. And Jesus vanquished it at his resurrection. And one day he'll vanquish it for good. And our bodies and our souls will be united forever. In other words, the physical universe is a good thing against legalism. That's the second thing. Third thing, though, we also then find that creation is designed not like secularism, okay? Creation is real, not like pantheism. It's good, not like legalism. And it's designed, not like secularism. Look, the secularist is, is the word that I'll use for sort of your modern uh, atheistic scientist who looks and, ins and insists on the fact that the reason why we have a creation is due to simple, bald, immaterial forces, just this week, there were numerous articles from Dr. Stephen Hawking, who is releasing a new book or has released a new book, where he's basically saying that there is no reason to posit that there was a God who designed everything. We are here for no other reason than the sheer force of gravity. Um, there was a, um, a 20, uh, 20th century scientific historian by the name of Carl Becker who put it this way. He says, edit and interpret the conclusions of modern science as tenderly as we like it is still quite impossible for us to regard man as a child of God for whom the earth was created as a temporary habitation. Rather, we must regard him, mankind, as little more than a chance deposit on the surface of the world carelessly thrown between two ice ages by the same forces that rust iron and ripen corn. Now, I want to recognize that there are lots of scientists who don't want to put that quite as coldly as Dr. Becker just did. But there's an often ignored, but in my opinion, unavoidable truth that stems from someone who says that the universe is here by a bald, impersonal force. And that's simply this. If you believe that, you can never talk about something being bad or good ever again. You just can't, not with any integrity. And this is, this is the illustration that Keller uses at this point. He talks about his wristwatch. I don't have a watch. I use my phone for my watch. But he says, what if you heard me complain about my watch, that there was a problem with it? And the problem with this watch is it won't hammer the nails that I want it to hammer. You would look at him and say, okay, well, see, the problem with your problem with your watch is that that's not really the watch's purpose. You see, the watch's purpose is to tell time, not to hammer nails. In other words, what Keller says is, is you cannot say whether something is good or bad unless you know its purpose. So pray tell. <laughs> if man emerged from the primordial slime, i.e. no purpose, then how are you going to generate a frame of reference at all to say that one man did something bad or one man did something good. In other words, you contradict your own worldview if we believe that, that those are the impersonal forces that created it. Better yet, I would argue, how are you going to justify your claims for anything that you believe to be true, even your own existence? 
even, ironically, <laughs> the scientific method. Look, y'all, Christianity has always insisted that, that the creation has a designer behind it. And he has so commissioned his people to go out into that creation and mine from it the hidden potentialities that are there. I, I, am, I am often bugged, if I can use that scientific word, by the kind of press that guys like Christopher Hitchens and um, Richard Dawkins have gotten lately who have said that scientific inquiry is over if these theists have their way. In other words, all they're going to do is say, well, we don't really know how that happened, so God must have done it. There, let's quit thinking about it. In other words, placing God in the gaps and we'll end scientific inquiry. Nothing could be further from the truth. Every Christian delights in investigating God's creation. You want to know why? Because they see God's fingerprint in all of it. Listen to me, scientists. <laughs> Don't give up. Don't give up. Investigate the things that God has placed in his creation for his children in which to, to delight in. Fourthly, creation is finite, not like paganism. Okay, Creation is real, not like pantheism. It's good, not like legalism. It's designed, not like secularism. And finally, it's finite, not like paganism. Now look. Those first three that I listed, they make the mistake of sort of thinking too little about creation. This one makes the mistake of thinking too much of it, so much so that they begin to worship it. The pagan looks and says, when they see the energies in creation, when they look and see the amazing wonder of it all, they want to tap into it, and many times for right reasons. But what happens is, is they mistake the creature, the created thing, for the creator, and they begin to worship it. And what happens is, they make idols of those things. Now, you're thinking to yourself, well, what's the big deal in that? Somebody wants to worship a tree? Knock yourself out. Well, except God looks and says that whenever we worship the creature rather than the creator and we become an idolater, we cheapen the thing that we're worshiping. Look, <laughs> If I look and say that I will draw all of my worth off of, let's say, the person I'm dating, and I make that person all that I'm living for, I pour all of my energies into that person to say, you're the one who makes my life what it is. God says you've made an idol out of that person, and in making them an idol, you'll cheapen them. And you know what? They can't bear the weight of your worship, and because they can't bear the weight of it, you're going to deteriorate your own relationship. Some of you are struggling from that now, I would gather. Look, Christianity comes and says, creation is a wonderment. But it's only a wonderment because it points us to the author that's behind it. That is a great transition, I think, to the third and final point. And I'll finish with this one. Creation and us. We looked at creation and God, creation and the world, and all these wrong ways of viewing it. What does that have to do with me, Les? How can I apply this? Well, there's a couple things I would mention. First of all, Christians really ought to be the ones that are the most excited about life's simplest pleasures. We ought to be the ones that are showing the world how to really enjoy God's creation. A sunset, a, 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 a great meal. I, I wish we had time to do like a theology of mealtime. 
There's something about having dinner with someone that's a spiritual thing, I promise you. Gracious company that stays late at night for a great conversation. Extraordinary art that makes you think for weeks after you've seen it. Manicured gardens where someone has, has exercised skill at growing something. Astounding concerts that we walk away from and say, now that's talent like I've never seen. As Christians, we ought to be the ones celebrating those things. And instead, we tend to be the ones that are like going, well, actually, we're boycotting those. Instead of celebrating the good gift that we see implanted in all places, not only in the people that are doing it as Christian stuff. In other words, shouldn't Christians be the one that celebrate God's gift, even when it comes through people that don't necessarily care a thing about him? Christians ought to be doing that. And to be honest with you, there's a lot of Christians that get very excited about the doctrine of creation when they realize, they're like, you're exactly right. The fingerprint of God is all over the place. It's in good art. It's in great music. It's in great food. It's in wonderful company. We ought to be the ones that celebrate that. But you know what happens? Mm. What happens is we tend to sort of get to that thing and want to enjoy it, but then we sort of make it to be too much. We become pagans when we come to college, do we not? We come to Ole Miss, and oftentimes I see people come to Ole Miss, and they are full of condemnation. They're looking at all the pleasures out there, and they're wagging their fingers at it. But eventually, the sort of tide of it sort of carries them away. And what they do is they take the pleasure of those things, legitimate though they are, on their own terms, and they take that to be the final end of it all, and you don't acknowledge its source. And because you don't acknowledge its source, you know what you do? You abuse it. Oh, you've shaken off the shackles of the old religious upbringing. No more Christian fundamentalism here. But all you've done is trade one idol for the other. You used to be self-righteous, now you're pagan, but you're serving the exact same ends, and that's you. Look, the bottom line is there's only two options for you if you're not going to follow Jesus as your creator. <laughs> you're either going to, number one, be scared of creation, or number two, you're going to be addicted to it. Those are the only two choices. In other words, on the one hand, you're going to be like these first century Christians who were habitual forbidders. Always looking and pointing about these numerous things that you cannot do. As if sort of the whole point of Christianity was to get you to say no to anything and everything. Or you're going to become like those who actually are so into this world that you're simply not willing to part with it. Paul tells all of his people to hold your stuff loosely. Yes, we have Christian freedom to enjoy God's creation, but we also have the freedom to give up our freedom in order to say to it, you will not have command over me. It's why Christians oftentimes would fast, saying, food is wonderful, it's good, but you know what, for today, I'm not going to eat it. You want to know why? Because I want it to know that it does not judge me. And I'm not talking about people who struggle with overweight, I'm also talking about people who struggle with underweight. How much does food tyrannize you? Ladies, when was the last time you had a meal where you weren't thinking about what this meal meant about what your next meal could be? Hmm. 
Look, Christians ought to be the ones enjoying it, but enjoying it because of what it points to, not for the thing in itself. Secondly, though, we also should be the ones who are most prominently concerned with protecting and conserving God's creation. Nothing galls me more than the fact that it's typically the secularists who are the most ardent of ecological defenders. We should be the ones, Christians ought to be the ones that are leading the way in preserving God's creation. You want to know why? Because he's there. (laughs) One of the great works that you do with evangelism is to see to it that we are green (laughs) as Christians. That we are those that want to do everything that we can to preserve God's creation. That's That's not the Democrats' agenda or the Republicans' agenda. This is God's agenda. We do anything we can to pursue that because they'll find him there. Thirdly and finally, Alistair McGrath says in one of his little books on the Apostles' Creed that the doctrine of creation allows you to feel at home in a world that is so immense that you would be very tempted to feel hopelessly obscure if you didn't. A number of uh, months ago, uh, I read this, uh, one of my geek um, uh, blogs, is it a blog? One of my little geek sites that I go to and, you know, people get on the internet and search for all kinds of stuff. I go to Apple websites, bear with me. One of my favorites is uh, Gizmodo. And there's a guy who writes for Gizmodo uh, named Jesus Diaz. He's my favorite because he's hilarious. But there was a picture that he published at one point um, from the Hubble telescope pictures. Are you aware of this? Okay, you know we have a telescope floating around in our space above the earth. And they point this sucker off into space, right? And capture what would be in the sort of I guess that the universe is a sphere, a relatively small area of, of, of space. And in these photographs, they can't count how many galaxies are in it. In just this one small little cross-section of space that they're looking at, much less the rest of the galaxies throughout the universe. <laughs> okay, so this photo gets published. <laughs> this is what Dias says. He goes, this photo shows the power of image post-processing but it also shows that we are a tiny speck of nothingness in the middle of a fiery cosmic fluff. (laughs) Really? Why? Why? Look, let me throw this out to you. If Jesus is the author of creation, then he was the creator who suffered so that he could free creation from its bondage to decay and what that means then is that matter matters and if matter matters then you matter surely you've had that moment your dorm room is lonelier than you thought that it was going to be but have you stopped and looked around at oftentimes the shambles of your own life and thought Do I even matter? (laughs) Let me ask you a question. Some of you may have accepted Jesus as your Savior. My invitation for you tonight is this. Have you accepted Jesus as your Creator? Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, perhaps we need to rethink you. I guess we oftentimes have images of you impotent, weak, dying at the hands of your oppressors. 
and sort of sitting meekly at the Father's side. Little did we know that when you were among us, you were the ones who you were the one who spoke the universe into its very existence. And that the reason why the molecules in our body are holding, are holding together right now is because you are telling them to. Would you, Lord Jesus, if nothing else, grant us the wonder tonight of realizing that you have made all things around us and they all point to you so we can enjoy those things and enjoy you on the other side. Would you forgive us, Lord Jesus, that we have made idols out of alcohol that we've made idols out of girlfriends and boyfriends, that we've made idols out of money and careers and status, all created things which are meant to be good, but that we've destroyed because we made them too much. Would you grant us the grace of being free from those things because we saw you behind them? For we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen.